My colleague Amy Gardner covers voting and elections for The Post. And lately, that means spending a lot of time in Georgia. I've been back and forth a lot. I should fly Delta, because then I would do better in Atlanta. Three years ago, Amy broke the news that Donald Trump had called Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, asking him to find enough votes to change Georgia's election results. The state had been called for Biden in the 2020 election. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. So, so tell me, Brad, what are we going to do? We won the election, and it's not fair to take it away from us like this. And it's going to be very costly in many ways. That phone call got the attention of Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. And uh, that that call was on January 2nd, 2021. And uh, she launched her investigation just a couple of weeks later. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Rhonda Colvin, and I'm your guest host today. It's Wednesday, August 16th. Today... Did Trump engage in a criminal conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election? We dig into the indictment in Georgia and what sets it apart from Trump's other legal troubles. Amy, if you could lay out for us, what exactly is D.A. Fonnie Willis charging Trump and his associates with? Fonnie Willis, the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, has sought and gotten an indictment of 19 people. It's a sweeping racketeering indictment. It's She's using a, a statute in Georgia called the Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, which mirrors a federal law that was originally written to go after the mafia in New York City. Thank you for joining us. I'm here with the prosecutors and investigators who have worked diligently on the investigation of criminal attempts to interfere in the administration of Georgia's 2020 presidential election. And that includes the pressure campaign, the harassment of election workers, the many, many, many false statements in tweets and interviews and Senate hearings um, about fraud, a meeting of the alternate electors to cast ballots even though they had lost the election, and then, of course, the phone calls to state officials uh, made by Trump and others. So those are the sort of individual buckets of allegations. But when you take it all together, that's the story that Fonnie Willis is trying to tell here, that it is this massive conspiracy over the course of months by these 19 people and others to steal a presidential election. What are the consequences of a successful prosecution of this case? That's a great question with a couple of different possible answers. One consequence, if she's successful, is certain prison time because the RICO statute calls for a mandatory minimum sentence of five years and a maximum sentence of 20 years. If you don't mind, Savannah Levins with 11 Quick question, can you clarify in Georgia uh, the mandatory minimum when it comes to RICO charges, whether it's cervical by probation or how that might play out? The RICO charges has time that you have to serve, so it is not a probated sentence. So if anyone is 
uh, successfully prosecuted and convicted of under the RICO statute, they will be going to prison. So that's kind of remarkable. A couple of other things that are interesting and different about Georgia than the federal case. Uh, it's very difficult to seek a pardon in Georgia, unlike in the federal system. The president has pretty unilateral power to issue pardons. That's not the case here. So it wouldn't be easy for there to be pardons issued either. That's another distinction here. Why is the fact that D.A. Willis is using racketeering statutes to apply to this case, why is that getting so much attention? Fonnie Willis likes to say that the RICO statute gives her the ability to tell a story. And what that means is that by scooping up all of those actions that I mentioned earlier, she's putting together this big kind of portrait or landscape of everything that happened from start to finish that contributed to this criminal enterprise that she's alleging. And the other thing that Fonnie Willis likes to say about this RICO statute is that an act in furtherance of the conspiracy does not itself have to be a crime. And that may sound a little outrageous, but it's been successfully used and prosecuted in this manner here for many, many years. And so it'll be very interesting to see if the outrage that we're hearing around the country about this indictment and and how it's a quote-unquote abuse of government and so on, it'll be interesting to see if those voices of criticism are right and if this does uh, fall short or if not, because it has been successfully used in this manner before. Um, In addition to Trump, Willis is also charging 18 other people. Who would you consider to be key players in the indictment, and what is their connection back to Trump? So um, obviously you have Trump alleged to be at the top of the heap uh, running the scheme. Um, And then you've got the people very, very close to him, Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, and his lawyers, Rudy Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, John Eastman. Then you've got the people on the ground. You've got folks who helped arrange or participated in the elector meeting, and that's David Schaefer, the chairman at the time of the Republican Party, um, a couple of lawyers on the ground, Robert Cheeley and Ray Smith. And then you've got the the people who were involved in the breach in Coffee County, including Misty Hampton, the elections director there, and Kathy Latham, the head of the party in Coffee County, and a few others. Um, And then the final bucket are the three individuals who are accused of harassing Ruby Freeman, who was an election worker in Fulton County. These are people who, on behalf of Trump, visited her and allegedly threatened her to admit that she had committed fraud in order to sort of further Trump's claims. One thing sticking in my mind right now about Rudy Giuliani There's this irony that he, you know, his career was made famous because he applied RICO statutes in New York when he was taking on the mafia there. And it sort of made his career, but yet he is now being charged with that that same set of laws. Have we heard anything from Giuliani in response to the indictment? Well, he actually did a big rant on Tuesday night. There's probably no one that knows it better than I do, probably some that know it as well. I was the first one to use it in white collar cases. But in major cases like the Boski case and the Milken case, uh, this is not meant for election disputes. 
So he has responded, and he is sort of indignant. That's probably too mild a word to describe his attitude on on that. Um, although it's also worth pointing out that there's been news reports that Rudy Giuliani's children have been reaching out to him out of concern about the way he's behaving. So that's another data point in all of this. Amy, if we can just look back at the history and sort of the timeline of how all of this happened back in, in 2020, um, where does the effort to change the outcome of the 2020 election start with Trump and his allies, and how does it play out over the, the next couple weeks? The initial days after the election, when lawyers for the campaign were gathering and saying, okay, what's going on? Where are the, where are the margins really tight? I personally put those kinds of behaviors in those first few days, maybe the first week uh, after November 3rd, into the category of completely legitimate campaign activity. That is what all presidential campaigns do in the days after a very, very close election. I think the pivot point came maybe a week after the election. They stopped counting for four hours, and a lot of things happened. The election apparatus in Georgia is run by Democrats. We also had margins of 300,000. And And that's when he went outside and Giuliani took up the cause of fighting the fraud cases, as well as Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis and John Eastman. So I think that that pivot point was like a week after. And from there on out, you saw moment after moment or instance after instance of the fraud being debunked, but he didn't relent. All I can do is campaign, and then I wait for the numbers. But when the numbers come out of ceilings and come out of leather bags, uh, you start to say, what's going on? But I want to just tell you that I am. Th- I love this state. I love the- and that's how it built. It just kept building. He kept doing it despite the evidence that he was wrong. Yeah, you mentioned the alternate electors and that part of the scheme. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and explain why the Trump team hoped that that would happen, that they would have a a fake set of electors to send to the Electoral College. So everybody knows that the presidential election is decided by the Electoral College in this country, and the way that it works is that each campaign selects electors, and whoever wins the state, that slate of electors meets on a given date, in the case of 2020, it was December 14th, and they cast their ballots. And then they sign these certificates that say, we're the true and right electors of Georgia for Joe Biden or Donald Trump. And then they follow this procedure laid out under federal law, and they send those electors to the National Archives and to the Congress. And then Congress meets in a joint session on January 6th, following the election, and effectively certifies the vote. Now, backing up to when they started the Trump campaign started planning for these electors to meet in seven states. John Eastman was talking about using these electoral votes to thwart the counting of the electoral votes on January 6th in Congress. What Fonnie Willis is alleging about the electors in Georgia is that the 16 people who met on December 14th in Atlanta to cast their electoral votes for Trump did so illegally because Joe Biden had won the state. The election had been certified for Joe Biden. Brian Kemp had certified it, the governor. And so she's alleging that when they signed these certificates, 
and sent them off to Washington and to the federal courts, they were committing forgery and impersonating public officials. So that's what she's alleging, that it was a scheme that was illegal because they were not actually legitimate electors for Trump. Their defense is that they were meeting just to be able to contest the election results in pending court cases. That's what they say. We're hearing a lot about Coffee County right now as well, even though these charges are stemming out of Fulton County. But could you tell us a little bit about the tampering of election machinery? What does that mean exactly? What happened in Coffee County is that Misty Hampton, at the time the election supervisor, put out a video that went viral that showed her uh, allegedly demonstrating that votes could get switched in the Dominion voting equipment that's used in Georgia. So you made a vote for someone where someone did not vote? I did, didn't I? And you're the election supervisor? I'm the election supervisor. I am the person that sits and does the adjudication. Yes, sir. And a couple of other people sort of freelancing on behalf of Trump, including this local businessman who's one of the indicted people, Scott Hall, arranged for a group of, um, you know, technically trained people from this company in Georgia called Sullivan Strickler to go to Coffee County and Misty let them in to the building and let them look at the equipment and copy the hard drive of the equipment. So I think that's kind of one of the, the cruxes of the case in Coffee County. The indictment also includes lots of details in other states, full stop. And that's allowed under Georgia's RICO case. It's part of that ability to tell the story with the RICO uh, statute. So she's bringing in Coffee County to help her tell this story. And lastly, I remember being in the room covering the uh, congressional panel's investigation into January 6th last year. Do you know how it feels to have the president of the United States to target you? And hearing the testimony from Shea Moss, an election worker, as well as uh, interviews with her mother, uh, Ruby Freeman. I no longer give out my business card. I don't transfer calls. I um, don't want anyone knowing my name. I don't want to go anywhere with my mom because she might yell my name out over the grocery aisle or something. Their story is also incorporated into this indictment. Can you tell us about what happened to these workers and what the DA alleges Trump or his team did? The night of the election, the counting facility that had been set up for mass tabulation of ballots was at this facility in downtown Atlanta called the State Farm Arena. And it had surveillance video and there were media there. And some folks out in the world got the surveillance video through a public records request and doctored it, basically, to make it look shady and to make it look like they were taking these cases out from under this table when no one was looking after the lights had been turned off and scanning them again in order to double and even triple count ballots for Biden. This was not true. And another top aide to Brad Raffensperger named Gabe Sterling actually walked the public through the full surveillance video and explained those are not suitcases full of ballots. Those are ballot boxes, and this is what happened, and no ballots were counted twice or three times, and here's how we know this. So that is how that whole story started. And the two people in the video 
were Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. And they started getting harassed. They got death threats. I haven't been anywhere um, at all. I've gained about 60 pounds. I just don't do nothing anymore. I don't want to go anywhere. I second guess everything that I do. Um, And I think that uh, Fonnie Willis holds some particular outrage about the way these election workers were harassed. And to bring all of these threads together, what will Willis need to prove to make the case that Trump himself was a part of a criminal conspiracy? I think she's got a couple of challenges. I think she has to prove that Trump knew that he had lost. Uh and that the others knew that he had lost. Uh, In fact, one of the things that Rudy Giuliani said on that rant on Tuesday is, I'll take a lie detector test to show you that I believe the fraud happened. So that's that's a key little uh, data point that they know exactly where the, the, the legal challenge lies with this case. The key is showing that people knew exactly what they were doing. And I think that's going to be difficult to get inside the minds of these folks. After the break, Amy walks us through the next steps in this case and the risk and benefits of Fonnie Willis's legal strategy. We'll be right back. What do we know about the next steps for this case, uh, going to trial or progressing? Who will make the ultimate decision to convict Trump and his allies or not? And and what are we going to see next? So the very next thing is seeing each of these people either voluntarily turn themselves in for arraignment and first appearances or not resisting. So that's the next step is people coming in and getting fingerprinted, right? Uh, Fonnie Willis said she uh, wants everyone to show up by August 25th next week. The Fulton County Jail is typically where defendants come for arraignment, fingerprinting, mugshot. And we've learned that they will indeed be fingerprinted and mugshot here. But the question is, will it happen in the jail? It's a notorious place, um, not a nice place. A couple of people have died there this year. The lawyer teams and even the Secret Service in Trump's case have been intervening about whether that is going to be the place where people come, uh, which is fascinating and kind of horrible uh, to think about. And then and then we're also going to already start seeing pretrial filings. We're going to see the defendants' legal teams putting in motions to dismiss, motions to remove the case to federal court. That's actually already happening. Mark Meadows' lawyer has already talked about doing that. Uh, David Schaefer's lawyers have already talked about doing that. Uh, And so that's kind of like a great window into the beginning and how long this is going to last, because you're going to just see so much flurry of paper going back and forth, and I suspect for months, if not years. And Amy, you've been covering this story from the beginning. In fact, your reporting on the call between Trump and Raffensperger is a a major part of this indictment. Um, And in looking back at this pressure campaign almost three years later, What is the most remarkable part of this story that stands out to you? I mean, I will say that when I listened to that call on January 2nd, my jaw dropped and I thought, wow, this is remarkable. And and that's the way the story was received. 
the the readership was, you know, blockbuster and it became a sensational story. But then four days later, January 6th happened, right? The attack on the U.S. Capitol. And honestly, one of the more remarkable things about this story is how desensitized the public is getting about all of these events. I don't know that that call, if it were revealed today, would have the same impact that it did then because there's been this sort of normalizing of Trump's behavior over the years. And so what's remarkable is no longer remarkable, and that's what's a little bit problematic for our country. Amy, thank you so much for sharing your reporting and your insights today. Thank you, Rhonda. It was really fun. Amy Gardner covers voting for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Arjun Singh. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. One more thing. I want to let you know about a live chat happening Thursday on our site with Lillian Cunningham, the host of our new podcast, Field Trip. The podcast is all about the national parks, and she'll be teaming up with travel reporter Natalie Compton to answer your questions. Again, that's happening on Thursday, August 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern, and you can even submit questions in advance. Find out more on WashingtonPost.com and in our show notes. I'm Rhonda Colvin. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.